Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Welcome to the NWF Podcast. This is Aaron Kindle, your host, along with Drew Youngdike, my co-host. Today, we're privileged to have a couple of great guests that we've been hoping to talk to for a while. We have Gray Thornton, the president and CEO of the Wild Sheep Foundation, and Kit Fisher, who works for the National Wildlife Federation on our Wildlife Conflict Program. Kit, what's your official title? I can't recall. I'm the Senior Program Manager, Wildlife Conflict Resolution. Great. So obviously within the title, Kit's out there trying to fix problems that wildlife create, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're, we're happy to have these guests today. And uh, Gray, we'll start with you. We always ask folks, what have you been doing outside lately to, to cure the itch, to, to get out there? And, and especially during these COVID times, how are you spending your time outdoors? Uh, well, first of all, Aaron, great to be on the program and uh, really, really look forward to the next hour. But yeah, I'm up here in uh, southwestern Montana. We're, uh, we're headquartered in Bozeman. And so um, uh, I've, I've got a, a crazy affliction. I've been a fly fisherman for 50 years, I guess, and nearly 50 anyway. And uh, I, I love saltwater fly fishing, love freshwater fly fishing. But I, I, I guess about six years ago, I decided if I can't get down to the salt, 
I could chase those Rocky Mountain redfish. So uh, we've been we've been pretty hard at it. Uh, warm water fishery, um, giving the trout a rest and chasing carp on the fly. So, you know, those, uh, those things have lips only a mother could love and are, uh, you know, I, I, they, they really are Rocky Mountain redfish, but redfish are easier to catch. So I've been having a lot of fun with that, uh, getting out in the, uh, getting out on the water. Uh, we use a drift boat, we use rafts and just have a good time. So have a group of guys, the editor of Wild Sheep Magazine that uh, Wild Sheep Foundation produces quarterly is, is one of uh, one of my carp uh, mates. And we had uh, Scott Morrison, his, uh, his son, John, uh, with Morrison Creative, uh, and then our new marketing and communication director, Keith Balford, uh, with us in carp camp. We had four nights, three days of chasing carp, and <laughs> I, uh, I didn't get enough on it. So I'm going to, I'm going to head out this weekend as well, but having a good time. A heck of a, heck of a deal on the, on the fly. I know I, I used to be the president of Denver Trout Unlimited when I lived in the Denver area and we would do a carp fishing tournament in the South Platte River right through downtown Denver every year. And people would catch 20, 25 pound carp, you know, 30, 35 inches right in downtown Denver. Yeah, I love it. Heck of a heck of a time. Yeah, they pull on for sure. Yeah, they do. How about you, Kit? What have you been up to? Oh, I was on the river last night till the wee hours, um, trying to cool off a bit and up on the Bitterroot and found some nice back sloughs that still were holding some rainbows in some deeper water and ended up with one nice rainbow right at dark. Came back up river, uh, pulled up our crawfish traps. I think we ended up with, I think our count was maybe 30. <laughs> nice. Um, so that's what's for dinner tonight. <laughs> Kit sent me a picture the other day of this rainbow, but his face wasn't in there. So I, I told him, you know, I can't, I can't verify that that's you even. So <laughs> uh, what about you, Drew? What, what have you been up to? Yeah, I've been, I've been on the road. So we've been uh, filming for a documentary about Asian carp, uh, different kind of carp, uh, the, the kind that jump out of the water. And uh, so that's taken us everywhere from uh, northern Michigan, surfing on Lake Michigan, to just this past week, I was in Indiana on the Wabash River and on Kentucky Lake, uh, trying to find some silver carp. And we found them. They were jumping all over, jumping in the boat. One just about took out my legs. And we got a 30-pound silver carp flying at you, you kind of understand why it's so important to reduce your population. So uh, wow. camp, camping out and uh, yeah, trying to find fish that nobody really wants to find in their waters. Yeah. Uh, well, good. Sounds like people are having a good time. I'll, I guess I'll just add uh, it. The monsoons have started here in Southern Colorado. We're finally starting to get some precipitation. We had a, a fire right here above my house in the San Isabel National Forest last year. And with this uh, newfound uh, precipitation, I took my family this past weekend and we found, I think, the only morels that are in the place uh, and, and cooked those up. So that was pretty awesome. We've been spending a lot of time on the boat fishing. The fishing's been excellent. But with those monsoons, the fire actually blew into the river just the other day and created a big black plume. And I'm not sure exactly what the uh, what the outcome of that's gonna be yet. We've had so much rain that the river's been really muddy instead of it was crystal clear before. And so we're not really sure what that's gonna look like. I'm hoping that that particular drainage stops shooting stuff into the river. But uh, we've had some great fishing this year and, and obviously getting some rails was a treat. So glad to be able to get outside and 
glad to be able to have guys like you on. Uh, we, we do, we, we hear great stories and, and hear about people really getting out there and getting after it. And it's, it's a good, it's a good thing to hear right now when we are all kind of cope, cooped up that people are getting out there. So, uh, we're just going to jump in. Uh, obviously gray and kit are here for one particular reason. I think we want to talk about, and that's bighorn sheep and what what's been going on with them you know what their status is these are the two these are two of the biggest experts on that issue and and obviously that's important to sportsmen and women and sheep hunters we thought folks would like to hear a lot about you know what's the status and what we can be doing so we'll just jump in and let's talk first about the history of bighorn conservation and i'll let either of you take that uh if you want but just kind of what's the history what are they looking like on the landscape here in the united states and you know how do we get where we're at well kid i'll uh, i'll jump in right now you know it, it's you know, you look at you look at one of those iconic species and, and we're so blessed in uh, in north america to have uh, a, a number of iconic species but you know bighorn sheep and thinhorn sheep um are, are are right at the top of the list and and and, and often at the top of the mountain but you know, when Lewis and Clark made their way west, um, you know, they they encountered great numbers of, of bighorn sheep. And uh, sadly, uh, through overharvest, quite frankly, you know, they taste good. So through overharvest and, and then uh, primarily through to or due to disease um, caused by domestic stock brought into their range, we, we, we basically decimated one to two million estimated in the 1800s down to about 25,000 in the 1960s, early 1970s. So um, but like uh, like many many unendangered species that uh, that the sportsmen and sportswomen have brought back, uh, there has been a great comeback. Uh, but unlike elk and deer and turkey, uh, we still don't have the numbers that we'd like to see on the landscape. We've got about eighty five thousand bighorn sheep uh, on on uh, the landscape in North America right now, and that's Rocky Mountain bighorn, a, a subspecies if you'd call it, California bighorn, and then desert bighorn. But um, certainly, certainly can do uh, do a lot more. What what's happened is um, there's there's a number of pathogens that um, that wild sheep can get, and, and it's it's both thinhorn and bighorn. And as our our VP of conservation, who you know Kit works very closely with, Kevin Hurley uh, likes to say, you know, bighorn sheep are born looking for a place to die. And and the sad thing is this this species that that ekes out a living in some of the harshest climates and the harshest weather and 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 the you know the harshest environments um, is so susceptible to um, respiratory uh, disease and it's I guess it's kind of interesting it's it's somewhat what we're dealing with right now with this pandemic um, you know separation uh, the, the key is to separate uh, bighorn sheep uh, from their domestic cousins domestic sheep and uh, and other domestic stock domestic goats so uh, National uh, Wildlife Federation and Wild Sheep Foundation work very, very closely o- over uh, you know the, the past decade, but even longer, uh, in working to find solutions to separate the two species. And um, uh, I'm just proud to be on the program. There's a lot to talk about, but you know the good news is 
Uh, there has been a comeback, but there is a lot more we can do. Uh, you know, 85,000 bighorn sheep on the landscape is, is better than 25,000, but it's, it's certainly not the, uh, the level that we'd like to see them. Uh, they're just such an enjoyable species to, to view, to photograph, and you bet, uh, you know, very, uh, very limited species to hunt. But, uh, boy, if you get the opportunity, uh, it's, it's just a, it's a fabulous place to be. Yeah, I would just add, you know, I think it's pretty telling when you look at the maps uh, and, you know, we can't, we can't look at them uh, on this program, but talking about, you know, essentially that map was red in the entire, not the entire West, but a large majority of the Western U.S. was occupied habitat for bighorn sheep. And... You know, there's considerable suitable habitat for bighorn sheep now that is not occupied. And we have much more in terms of there's these island populations of of sheep across the U.S. And, you know, that's a consequence of of everything that Gray has talked about. But it's also, you know, it's kind of the double-edged sword when it comes to bighorn sheep as they are susceptible to disease having more sheep on the landscape and having, you know, we're always in our organization, we're always talking about connecting wildlife populations and how do we make these populations more resilient, bigger populations, meta populations. That's the double-edged sword when we start talking with bighorn sheep is, you know, in some situations actually having these smaller, somewhat smaller populations um, that are self-sustaining that are, not connecting with other bighorn populations isn't always a bad thing because the amount of disease that is in bighorn populations right now um, is something that we really have to keep in mind. I mean, it's not only disease coming from domestic sheep and, and conflict from that side, but from their own, uh, their own, you know, their own kind is is responsible for spreading disease, and you know I think that's really been another piece that's that's hampered recovery and and kind of how it how we look at it different from from these other populations like elk and deer that you know are going across. It's hard to distinguish one one herd of elk from another sometimes, and you know bighorn they don't they're not as much of a migratory species in the same way, and often. You know, you see them on a mountain, you know, or right outside of Missoula, Montana, where I am, you drive up, um, you know, the Blackfoot River and, you know, nine times out of 10, you can point and say, well, this is where the sheep usually are. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just think that that's a, that's a real challenge when we look at, at how we can be expanding populations and what opportunity we have to really put more sheep on the landscape. So with the with the wild sheep foundation, then when where do you come in on that on that conservation restoration landscape? Then um, when when were you founded, and, and how does your organization do that work? 
Yeah, and, and, and Drew, it's interesting. You know, we, we've been comparing, you know, let's just, just take the, you know, bighorn sheep, and we've been comparing them to elk and, and mule deer, white-tailed deer. You know, the, the, the bottom line is they just didn't pay their way. There wasn't enough of them uh, to like, uh, you know, elk, for example, that, that uh, you know, sportsman dollars and hunting licenses and tags would, uh, would fund agencies to the point where they would make the species a priority. So, you know, back in the back in the 60s, uh, back in then the, you know, the early 70s, you started to see some organizations come out. I think the first first affiliate of ours, and it's actually older than us, uh, was the Fraternity of the Desert Bighorn, and they were formed in Las Vegas to start building the uh, the Desert Bighorn sheep herds around Southern Nevada. Uh, there's another great organization uh, in Colorado, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, was formed to do the same thing in Colorado. Wild Sheep Foundation was formed as the foundation for North American wild sheep in, in 1977. And the idea was it was actually a group of, uh, of sheep hunters in uh, Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, that got together and said, you know what, let's, let's put together an organization that would raise money to help uh, fund agency work, you know, our agency partners, whether they're, they're state, provincial, tribal, territorial, uh, to fund um, sheep restoration efforts. Um, and so the, the foundation was was founded on that purpose to to at the at the time as, as our purpose was then to put sheep on the mountain. Uh, there's been a great number of trap and transplants uh, that have occurred uh, since, uh, you know, since that time. Um, I think about 22, 24,000 bighorn sheep have been transplanted. And as Kit was pointing out, um, you know, we, you know, we, <laughs> we've learned though over the time, you know, we, we thought, okay, let's connect all the dots. Let's, let's take this Canyon and make sure that we've got, you know, we've got empty spots of suitable habitat. Let's plug those in. Well, you know, we started putting sheep in, in areas that maybe we shouldn't have, because as, as Kit pointed out, we, we started to uh, see that, um, you know, maybe these little separate populations were good uh, because they didn't have the connectivity. And if a disease outbreak occurred in one, it, it often did not get to the other. Well, we've learned over time and, and uh, the foundation with our partners, you know, the NWF, um, our, our agency partners and our chapters and affiliates have, have been working to reestablish herds where they're, you know, they should be and learning along the way. Um, you know, Nevada is an, an incredible um, example. There's there's about 11,000, 12,000 desert bighorn sheep in a state that in the 1970s, there were about 1,000. So they've done a great job. And what they've been doing is putting water out in, in areas that uh, the sheep and other, other wildlife can uh, can you know take advantage of. And water in Nevada means, means wildlife. So a lot of other success stories. But the foundation basically is an organization that that focuses on trap and transplants, habitat improvement, um, uh, you know, hunter opportunity. Um, but you know, the, the the big two are habitat enhancement and and restoration of putting you know putting sheep back where they should be, and could be. Um, so been a uh, it's it's been a it's been a great run. Um, and thanks to partners like NWF, you know, we've, we've been having a lot of success, you know, Kit, Kit could, you know, 
talk a lot more about some of the, the, the work we do together on uh, retiring domestic sheep allotments, uh, working with, uh, you know, with willing producers to, um, you know, move or retire their allotment to get domestic sheep out of areas that we could put uh, wild sheep. Uh, Wild Sheep Foundation does a lot of uh, disease research um, funding. Uh, we work with Washington State University and other other universities, other entities to to find out more about these pathogens. Uh, it seems to be the big bug right now is a thing called Mycoplasma ovinomoniae, which appears to be kind of a setup agent uh, for other pathogens to then come in. And if a, if a, if a uh, domestic sheep have it, Domestic goats have it, but as Kit pointed out, wild sheep have it. So, you know, you can have uh, you can have a vector be the you know the very species you're you're you know trying to conserve, and so that's where that key component is of sometimes connecting the dots is not a good thing, and separation even of wild sheep populations can be a good thing. We're going to get a little bit more to that too, Gray, the kind of how we're, how NWF and the Wild Sheep Foundation are, are teaming up to address it. Um, I got a couple of questions based on what you just said too. One is, tell us about the Wild Sheep Foundation structure. I mean, we have, as the National Wildlife Federation, we have, you know, 52 state and territorial affiliates. They help build our policy and, and we, you know, we're, we're, we answer to them in a lot of ways uh, about what what they're up to and what we're up to. Can you just compare, you know, what Wild Sheep does? Are your members that you spoke of, are they affiliates? Do they help, you know, build your policy and have a voting say or talk a little bit about how the organization works? Yeah, good, a good question. We're, we're actually pretty, pretty unique. Um, Aaron, we, we have, we have chapters that share our name. Uh, we have affiliates that don't share our name, but we work together. And then we have other affiliates that just, you know, may share a common purpose and any part of our mission. Uh, but most of all of our chapters are completely autonomous from the Wild Sheep Foundation. So, you know, if you, if you take our friends at the Elk Foundation, Foundation or Mule Deer uh, Foundation, where their chapters are kind of other the under the mothership, uh, ours are independent, autonomous organizations. Uh, so, while the Wild Sheep Foundation is a mothership. Uh, when we work in Colorado, when we work in Nevada, when we work in Montana, when we work in the Yukon, in British Columbia, in, in, in Alberta, uh, we are working directly with boots on the ground uh, men and women uh, who are a part of a, a, a chapter structure. So, um, and, and, and an autonomous structure. The Alberta Wild Sheep Foundation, you can join Alberta Wild Sheep Foundation, but you're not a member of Wild Sheep Foundation National. So kind of unique. Um, there, there are some benefits to that. There's certainly some burdens to that. But, uh, you know, what we do is we, we call it one tent, one campfire. And it's a concept that I was I brought back. I brought to, to the organization back in 2008 that, hey, you know, let's let's start working a little bit better together and, and not be these silos out there. So uh, we, we annually get together. We unfortunately didn't get to do that this year under the pandemic. But 
but uh, we annually get together and, and talk strategy. Um, we do work together on policy. Um, you know, we work with NWF on policy. Um, but you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna work in Colorado, for example, uh, we are going to cooperate, communicate, and develop a joint strategy with our affiliate there, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn. Uh, society. If we're going to work in Arizona, we're going to do the exact same thing with the Arizona Desert Bighorn Society. So uh, often the the chapter or the affiliate is is the the point, you know, the tip of the spear. Um, you know, they're the ones that have uh, direct contact with uh, with their respective agency. We do too, uh, but again, it's a real collaborative approach. That uh, you know, we want to make sure that the the horsepower that the the national or the international that we you know that I represent uh, and our staff represents uh, is working you know just hand in hand with the with the local affiliate. So it works pretty well. You know, there's there's challenge. There's sometimes where we have a uh, a cross uh, a cross purpose uh, or a cross philosophy. Um, you know, since we work with a whole bunch of different states and a whole bunch of different jurisdictions, often a strategy that worked in one state is not the right strategy that that will work in another state or province or territory. So uh, a little bit of a balancing act there, um, you know, and because they're autonomous, uh, you know, we, we've got to, uh, we, you know, we got to play, I guess, by the rules and play well in the sandbox. Great, great. Uh, you know, when you were talking just before this, something came to mind too, and it's just maybe a basic question for guys like you, but you talked about some of this conservation starting in Wisconsin. Is there, is there wild sheep in Wisconsin first? And second, maybe how many are there in North America? How many different species are there? And where do they, you know, how, you know, broadly, what is their range and where do they live? Yeah, you bet. You know, you've got the, the white sheep, which is the doll sheep, and that is up in Alaska. Uh, the Yukon, Northwest Territory, and there's a little slice, Aaron, of Northwestern British Columbia uh, that there's the white sheep, the doll sheep. Uh, that's a thin horn sheep. Then you have the stone sheep, uh, which is primarily in uh, Northern British Columbia. Um, there are, uh, there's recent DNA studies basically saying that the stone sheep that are in the Yukon are, are, are just a uh, dark pelage dolls. Uh, I won't get into that argument, but, you know, primarily stone sheep are in, 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 uh, in um, uh, northern British Columbia and the Yukon. And there is a little slice of uh, southwestern or southeastern Alaska that's got a, a bit of fan in there. But anyway, so those are the two thin horn sheep. And then the, you know, it's kind of splitters and lumpers, but you've got the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep that's in Alberta, uh, lower British Columbia, the western states, uh, and then you've got the desert bighorn sheep that is in the southwestern states, and then um, uh, Coahuila, Chihuahua, um, Sonora, and, uh, and Baja, so in Mexico. Um, so those are the, the four primary. There, there are subspecies of desert bighorn sheep. Um, there are, there's argument, you know, here, but there are subspecies of, of Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. There's a California, um, a, a California bighorn sheep. Uh, there is a Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep. So there are some subspecies, but primarily the four are Dolls, Stones, Rocky, 
and desert. And, you know, Aaron, your question. Wisconsin. Nothing in Wisconsin. It's so really interesting. We have, we've got, um, we've got chapters, we've got our Eastern chapter that's based out of Pennsylvania. We're looking to start a Southeastern chapter out of Georgia or uh, Tennessee. There are no sheep east of basically the Dakotas and Nebraska. There's a little, little, a few big horns that are sneaking over into Oklahoma, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. you've, you know, you've got, you know, the, the, the sheep are a Western resource, but we do have chapters of sheep conservationists, sheep hunters that are very, very active in Iowa, uh, in, in the East Coast, Pennsylvania, and then our Midwest chapter uh, used to be called the Minnesota Wisconsin. Uh, obviously no sheep there, but there are sheep in North Dakota and South Dakota. So they changed their name to Midwest, and they kind of captured those sheep as uh, as their own. So they work very, very closely with uh, game departments in North Dakota, South Dakota to uh, to put and keep wild sheep on those mountains. Well, I got to say, I'm relieved because I was thinking, oh hell, I I don't even have any sheep out out Midwest and East, and I I must have been missing something. But I I guess yeah. I'm not. I I had a pretty good grasp. Apparently. No cheesehead sheep. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things Kit and I were talking about when we were thinking about this podcast too are you know sheep and bison are kind of unique. They're they're like the only big game species that's not fully recovered, what we would call fully recovered. You know, since the the low numbers and the depletion, um, and and really we're talking about sheep. But you know, talk about some of the hurdles to recovering them. And you know, this is maybe where Kit can, you can come into with how we try to alleviate the the conflicts and and what are the biggest issues facing them right now. I know we have some disease and things like that, but I, I'd like both of you, if you would, just to wax on that a little bit. I think they're they're like Gray mentioned they're majestic and iconic, but they're also, interestingly, a bit fragile um, and, and susceptible to to a lot of issues. And there's some pretty big hurdles. And I think we couldn't have two better guys to, to tell us and walk us through that. Well, I'll, I'll start her off here. Um, you know, our work in National Wildlife Federation working on, on bighorn conflict has been primary, primarily related to the domestic sheep disease issue. And as Gray talked about, creating that separation between the species has been a focus of ours. And we've partnered um, extensively with Wild Sheep Foundation and worked with about nearly every one of their uh, Western chapters or affiliates at this point and on, on both you know, making, uh, making deals happen with domestic sheep producers and you know, funding these projects and sheep conservation isn't cheap. And, you know, for a species that, um, that, you know, that there aren't that many of them, there is a, a very strong fan base and sheep advocates, uh, do put their money where their mouth is. And, I think we've been extremely successful. So just a brief look at kind of what we're doing is, you know, we are working on these high risk domestic sheep allotments on forest service and BLM lands. And when I mean high risk, we're talking about domestic sheep operations grazing on public land that are often on top of bighorn sheep populations or immediately adjacent to. And the disease risk 
is imminent or there has been a history of disease because of those domestic sheep populations. And, you know, so I think unlike, you know, strategies that other groups employ with um, litigation, um, I think we found a pretty creative solution working with operators and these ranchers that are, you know, themselves looking for, you know, long-term stability in their operations. And, you know, we approach them, we make voluntary agreements, um, whereas they will um, either waive their domestic sheep permit, or often we have also compensated producers to help convert their operations to cattle grazing, where that conflict of disease um, is not an issue. And, you know, just a sort of a snapshot of, of where we've been doing this work extensively in Idaho, I think has been a tremendous success story. When you start looking at how much conflict and disease issues were in Idaho, you know, even 10 years ago and where we've come now in terms of you know, really the risk of disease and, and the majority of, of Idaho bighorn herds is gone. Um, we're also working in uh, Montana, Wyoming extensively. Um, we've just done some of our first um, deals now in Colorado and New Mexico and partnering with, with Wild Sheep Foundation the entire way on these. And I think, you know, it's, it's a model that is largely non-controversial and really understanding that there's a financial value um, you know, for these ranchers that, that may be displaced because there is this disease risk. And, you know, putting money on the table um, so they can reinvest in their operations and, and graze their livestock and somewhere else where they're not having these problems is really the best outcome that we can ask for. Yeah, and, and you know, to, to add that, you know, Kit is, you know, we... Wild Sheep Foundation and, and National Wildlife Federation has has had that that view of you know what let's let's work together um, and and not just together our two organizations but let's work together with uh, with the domestic sheep producers that you know sitting around a table um, you know recognizing that you know that they as Kit pointed out you know that, that you know they have they have interests they are stakeholders uh, we are stakeholders and and um, you know they they can coexist just not on the same acreage and so you know we we've we've done i think a a very good job uh with some challenges here and there and and some you know some angst here and there but we've done a very good job of of you know trying to bring the domestic sheep interests and the wild sheep interests together uh respect each other uh and 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 come to deals you know often uh, often that's done actually even at a at a you know a, a, a very I don't want to say low level but you know the, the you know from my level within the Wild Sheep Foundation sometimes I can have a challenge with the leadership of the domestic sheep associations then they have an issue with me uh, but at the producer level and and at you know some of our staff level you know we can we can sit down and at a table and break bread and and go okay or have a beer and say look uh you know we want to put more sheep on the mountain but we don't want to put you out of business so how can we work that out 
you know, there's, there's interesting collaboration happening right now in Montana. Um, just, uh, just, you know, around town and, and to the, to the, the north and, and, and west of Bozeman are the Bridger Mountains. And four or five years ago, there was a thought of, you know, could, there should be bighorn sheep in the Bridgers. There aren't. There's, there's goats, Rocky Mountain goat. But we, uh, you know, there was a thought of, you know, should we put bighorn sheep in the Bridgers? Well, we don't have any commercial producers or large-scale domestic sheep operations there but there are a large number of recreational flocks and some some smaller commercial on private land um and and so you know here an organization the wild sheep foundation and our montana chapter organizations whose purpose right now is to put and keep wild sheep on the mountain we're actually opposed to putting bighorn sheep, transplanting bighorn sheep in the bridges because we thought we were just giving them a death sentence. Uh, we've changed our mind a little. And, and, and what's really exciting is our Montana chapter, uh, Montana Wild Sheep Foundation, has worked very closely with uh, the Montana Wool Growers Association. And, Mon- and those two organizations got together and drafted a letter with you know, our total support uh, to our governor and to Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks saying, look, we want to work together as two uh, stakeholders and urge the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks to work on a transplant in the Bridgers, put bighorn sheep there. We've got collaborators, collaborators, collaborators with uh, uh, Montana State University to do separation research and maybe use this as a study area to, to learn things that we don't yet know uh, and to study things that we don't even think about uh, to see how we can we can have these two species be in an area. Uh, I don't know if I could say coexist, but at least work on some different separation strategies other than just, nope, there's no, no bighorn sheep in the bridges. So, you know, there's a, a classic situation of collaboration where um, in the past we've opposed and, and now we're going to work together with uh, the wool growers and try to put sheep into an area that there should be wild sheep in an area that should be, and there hasn't been. So, you know, that's, I think that's, what's been unique with wild sheep foundation and, and NWF is that, you know, we've, we've taken a tact of, um, you know, not going to litigation, uh, but more collaboration. And, and as Kit pointed out, it's worked pretty darn well. That's excellent. One thing that I just, just, I mean, we kind of talk about this because it seems like a lot of people know, but what is the biggest issue facing sheep? I mean, we know it's disease. I I think (laughs) I've been assuming that I've known there's, there's some pretty big issues with pneumonia and other things, but just for our listeners and to clarify, is it just, just to be sure it's that. And then also, is there other things besides you know, just the, mainly the disease is the big issue, or are there other things that we're, we're needing to look at? Aaron, our position is disease is the number one limiting factor. There, you know, there's habitat concerns, um, you know, and, and, you know, our biologists could talk, talk more to that, but, you know, there's, there's conifer encroachment, there is predation issues, uh, there's, there's energy development issues up in the north, uh, which are, are not so much, um, um, you know, the, the, the footprint of the, the um, you know, the extraction industry, but it, it's actually the roads and it's just providing access maybe to where there hasn't been access. So, you know, those are things that we, uh, we work with 
uh, a, a number of stakeholders on. But yeah, disease is the number one issue. Um, you know, and Kit pointed out earlier in the in the program. Um, you know, we're having a hard time. There's a lot of suitable habitat out there, but we're having a hard time finding habitat that's safe to put bighorns back in. And so, uh, you know, that is a number one limiting factor. There's, there's a bunch of others, but that's a number one limiting factor. The other thing, and I, and I think we should point out is the, the funding model. Um, as I, as I mentioned earlier, sheep don't pay their way. Uh, I did, we did a study 2014 in, in Montana. Now the dynamics have changed a little bit with our licensing program and, and an application fee, but, um, if, if you just took the, the license fees and tags from resident uh, hunters, which is, you know, that's what 70, 75% of the funding of the North American Wildlife Conservation Model is hunters and anglers. If you took that money, you couldn't even pay one to biologists from the, the annual revenue from license fees and tags for bighorn sheep in Montana. You couldn't pay one biologist, so they don't pay their way. So there's been kind of a unique funding model. I used to call it the bastardization of the North American funding model. My good friend Shane Mahoney from Newfoundland said, no, Gray, actually, it's, it's right in line with the North American model. He's, he and Val Geis are the experts there. But back in the 1980s, uh, it started with uh, the Wyoming governor, um, an organization, ours, FANAWS, was given a special permit to sell uh, an opportunity to hunt a bighorn sheep. So where, you know, our, our model of conservation is pretty egalitarian where, you know, us as, as regular guys and gals can apply for a sheep permit and maybe get it. And it may take 15 years. It may take 50 years to, to get a permit. You have the opportunity to buy uh, that, that opportunity at a high, high level. Um, Aaron, I think it was you that said, you know, this, this, this stuff takes money. You know, we, we sold the Montana permit in, in uh, 2013 for nearly $500,000. And that was the opportunity to hunt a bighorn. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that, that find that abhorrent that, oh, my gosh, you know, you're, you're, you're selling our wildlife to the highest bidder for one rich guy or gal to go, you know, have the opportunity to kill a bighorn. And, and there's those within our community that feel that way. But let me tell you what, uh, Montana is also a state that has unlimited licenses. So there are a few areas, uh, primarily in the biggest pile of rocks in the world, the Beartooth Mountains, uh, that everyone can get a tag to hunt bighorn sheep. Now the success rate is three, two, three, four, sometimes 5%. Uh, and there's only two uh, often animals allowed to be harvested, but you can have a tag. And I, as I pointed out, I was blessed in 2014 to to shoot a bighorn in unit 500 uh, when I was a resident of Wyoming on a $750 tag. Um, and I had that opportunity because some very wealthy individual and a friend of mine from West Virginia paid $305,000 for the opportunity to hunt a bighorn in the Missouri River Breaks. And so his contribution to wildlife conservation, and that money goes right into Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, that opportunity that he bought for that great amount of money 
provided me as a regular guy the opportunity to hunt in an unlimited area and lucky enough by the grace of god to get a get a ram so you know we did that you know i talked about that study in 2014 we we found that 74 percent of all wild sheep conservation funding from agency standpoint uh, comes from either a license, uh, uh, a raffle tag, or an auction tag. And interesting enough, as as the Wild Sheep Foundation and our our annual convention, forty percent of all conservation funding to the agencies for wild sheep restoration and programs comes from the Wild Sheep Foundation. And, and through that through that special permit and tags, we'll we'll sell those and direct about three to four million dollars annually right into the agencies for them to fund uh, their conservation program. And as I pointed out, it's not just states; it's it's the provinces of Canada, the territories of Canada. We work very, very closely with First Nations and, and Indigenous people and the tribes. So uh, it's, a, it's a unique funding model, but uh, it works. So, Gray, you know, that's one of the issues that we, we think about, you know, with the low tag numbers and the long wait for the average, you know, Joe or Jane. It's, it's one, like, like you say, bighorn sheep don't pay their way. So it's a little bit tougher for the average sports person to stay engaged on the issues, you know, if, if you can hunt an elk every year, obviously you care about elk conservation. You know, how do we, how do we get those numbers raised and get more sheep out there and then and get more people engaged? And, and what do you, what do you see when you're trying to get, you know, somebody who's like, Oh, I've been waiting 12 years for my sheep tag and I still might be another 12. You know, how do you get those types of folks engaged? You know, that's a, it's a great, great uh, question. And, you know, we, we look at it, I think the un- unlimited opportunities are, are a, a great, uh, a, a great program, a very visionary with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. We've looked and worked with Wyoming Game and Fish, possibly looking at some unlimited uh, areas in Wyoming. Um, I don't know if we can get there on bighorn sheep, but there may very well be some unlimited areas where unlimited tags are available for Rocky Mountain goat. Um, but we've started some programs you know the the raffles are kind of the way to go well we've we started a program back in in 2012 2013 called the less than one club uh and that is for those uh those guys and gals that have taken less than one sheep and uh it was it was a a concept of uh, yeah and i was one of them too man um it was a concept of our our graphics designer justin phillips and and he and uh, his brother and a couple other guys a guy named chris kamak were sitting around a bar in reno nevada after our show and i think they'd had a number of rum and cokes and they were saying you know wow sheep foundation does all these things uh, you know the one more for four and then this what about a program for the you know the guy or gal that has less than one sheep so uh justin came i said come up with a logo and I'll build a program. And so what we did is we, we have a program where you join the less than one club and the idea is it's $20 and then we, uh, we uh, are 25 bucks for the membership. And then we've got a, a beer reception that we hold in Reno. We got about 1500 people to come into that beer reception and we give away sheep hunts to, to members of the less than one club so they can get kicked out. So, you know, that's, that's one program that we do. Um, you know, the, the biggest program though, I think is to, to get people engaged in, in the resource. And, and that is, you know, through, you know, membership in organizations like the wild sheep foundation or, or some of our chapter and affiliates getting involved in on the ground uh, work projects. It's amazing how many people are doing work, 
four wild sheep that will never have an opportunity to hunt sheep, but there's just a passion for the resource and they know they're doing something good. It just makes you, it makes you feel good. You know, sheep hunting is also an aspirational, um, you know, kind of an aspirational uh, pursuit. Uh, we're, you know, we're seeing more and more engagement from young men and women who, you know, want that tough hunt. Uh, it's not sitting in a, you know, nothing wrong with sitting in a tree stand or a box blind in Texas, but, uh, you know, there's something about being high in the mountains, being amongst the sheep. Uh, and there's a lot of guys and gals that are going out hunting, uh, you know, hunting wild sheep with someone else lucky enough to have a tag. So the key is just to be engaged, to get in the mountains, get involved in organizations like the Wild Sheep Foundation, get involved with organizations like the NWF, uh, you know, support those organizations with dollars, you know, work with our local NWFs and wild sheep chapters and affiliates um, and, and be engaged and, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And I'll say I've been in that room, Gray, and and tried my hand at that twenty dollar raffle and did not win. Mm. Uh, I know our one of our Artemis ambassadors, Jesse Johnson, uh, our, our our sportswoman's program, finagled her way with a friend and went up to, I think it was the Yukon Territories or the Northwest Territories. Yeah, and got in on it. Yeah, and got a, in on a really great hunt. There was a short film made about that, uh, but maybe someday I'll you, you know, you'll help me get that that raffle one and I'll and I'll get out of the club there but uh <laughs> I know Drew had another question for you regarding sheep well well yeah and this this kind of goes to when you were talking earlier about how the kind of prescriptions for sheep conservation are so different in different parts of the west and then you're also now talking about the lack of kind of funding overall with them not being able to pay their way are there any kind of nat- national overarching policies that that you work on that kind of fits all those buckets, even though it's so different in different parts of the state? Um, is is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act uh, part of that mix? I'm just wondering, um, probably as, an, as another uh, rabbit hole, if some of those Western states and their action plans have wild sheep conservation, um, you know, as part of what they would fund with that row of funding if it came through. Yes and no, um, you know, and, and, and it goes back to the conflict issue and, and what, what Kit's been pointing out. You know, for example, I mean, Montana has had a, a bighorn sheep management plan that's been in place for over a decade um, that required five new herds. Nothing has been done. Not a thing. Uh, why? Where do we put them that there's not going to be conflict with domestic sheep? So, uh, yes, there's components of national legislation. You know, most of the national and, and NWF and WSF work together on it is, you know, is Forest Service policy uh, and, and congressional direction to the Forest Service and BLM on when working on this separation issue and, and trying to come up with solutions uh, for the disease. You know, we, we, we would like to see more um agricultural funds, uh, USDA funds going to disease research. Um, we'd like to see the domestic sheep industry for their own well-being to fund more disease research. Because if we, if we could find the silver bullet, if we could find the, you know, the, the solution to this, this um, respiratory problem that, that bighorn sheep 
have and, and the conflict of uh, and the requirement of separation, uh, you know, that would be a boon, boon for all. So, yes, some of the national legislation helps. Uh, we're certainly engaged and we partner with uh, NWF on it. Uh, we do a lot of a lot of work in Washington, D.C. together, uh, primarily on separation strategies and forest service strategies and BLM. Um, but you know, we're, we're, we're hindered and wild sheep restoration is hindered by, uh, by the conflict issue. And, and, it, and that happens in the States, you know, in the territories, in the provinces. And I would just add that every, you know, every state is different in terms of their, you know, their state fish and game agency and priorities related to bighorns and staffing capacity. I mean, that's one thing I look at here in Montana is, you know, there's how many, how, how many biologists with our state fish and game agency are working on elk issues versus bighorn sheep full time. And obviously, you know, there's, there's money. Uh, there's a lot of hunters putting a lot of money into elk and they're a popular animal. There's a lot of tags available. Um, Bighorn sheep, I think, has kind of remained, you know, it's just it, it hasn't jumped in priority with a lot of the um, state agencies, mostly because it's a capacity issue. So I do see some hope sort of, you know, as, as you mentioned, Drew, with Recovering America's Wildlife Act and, and some potential um, additional capacity for, um, for management. Um, you know, part of it though, I think is, is getting, how do we get hunters more engaged in pushing our agencies to be a bit more risky and, and them more comfortable in that way? Cause I think that's partly been the challenge is the stain that an agency has if, when, when, not if a bighorn population has a disease event and a die off, that's not good press. And that's, you know, that's when they hear it from hunters is, what are you doing? You know, why, why aren't we uh, harvesting these bighorn sheep instead of seeing them tip over because of disease issues? You put sheep on top of, you know, in a, in a bad place, the agency's going to get the finger pointed at them. So how do, we, how do we create more cover and help our agencies in some of these areas where there might be some risk. We know that there's risk putting more bighorns out on the landscape, but that also means that more opportunity and more opportunity to, I think, get more people uh, interested and engaged in the conversation. Yeah, I think, Kid, I think you nailed that. I mean, more opportunity means more people interested, means more sheep hunters, which means more dollars, which means more sheep conservation. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and that's that's a position that we certainly take. It's time for us to take a little bit more risk and, and, and own that risk and, and give our agencies some cover that, hey, look, we recognize it, but let's try some things new. Nevada, you know, Nevada took that route. Nevada did some MOUs with producers and said, look, we're going to put some sheep in areas that we know there may be a problem. We're not going to hold you accountable. And they stuck to it. And, uh, and they've, you know, they've had one of the highest uh, recovery rates of any, any state, uh, province, or territory. So we're going to have to be more, uh, you know, more risky. That's a good segue, Greg. Uh, 
you know, obviously Wild Sheep Foundation and National Wildlife Federation team up to, to deal with this, but maybe give us a, a, a nice bird's eye view, maybe Kit, you can start with, with this is, you know, what did you do together? How did you alleviate issues? What does a typical, you know, conflict resolution situation look like when it comes to the work we do together and, and, or, you know, just alleviating the conflict with wild and domestic sheep, maybe give us an example of a place if you could. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, we've, we've just started our work, you know, we, for over, you know, close to 20 years, we've been working in the Northern Rockies on, on this issue and in previous um, conflict issues related to, you know, grizzly bears and, and predation. The bighorn conflict um, has kind of been a, typically when we're looking at conflict on allotment, there's more than, than one thing happening that's a problem and producers are feeling the pinch in more than one way. Um, but that bighorn domestic sheep conflict, um, I think, has, has been elevated recently. And so down in southern Colorado, we just completed an allotment retirement outside of Durango. You know, there was a situation, you know, I, it, it had been in the papers for several years in terms of you know a, an issue with the domestic sheep allotments and a producer that was grazing up there um you know people were getting excited about it worked up about it you know there was starting to be quite a bit of tension around the issue um the producer dug in a bit and and didn't want to leave which we can't blame him this is his livelihood so you know, we work closely on that deal with um, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society and Wild Sheep Foundation. And, you know, it, what I always say is that you don't, you don't know until you start talking to somebody to see if you can solve a problem. And the worst thing you can do is assume that they don't want to talk to you and they don't want to solve the problem. And, you know, we sat down and, you know, after four, six months, we came to an agreement in terms of a financial compensation for those, for that permit. And, you know, direct payment went to that rancher, um, a lot of money from wild sheep foundation and Rocky Mountain Bighorn society, um, and the NWF and some of our funding partners were able to make those deals happen. And, you know, we're talking a lot of money. These, these have ranged, you know, from, $30,000 to, you know, $400,000 um, for one payment, you know, and we're raising all of that with, um, you know, in, in usually a six, six month or a year period. And, you know, it's, it's creating a solution that otherwise wouldn't exist in a market that wouldn't exist as, you know, simply other, other ranchers aren't interested in picking up permits that, um, are burdened with conflict. And I think that's where uh, we've really been able to step in. Is there, is there kind of a misperception in, in some parts of, of the producer community that, that maybe it's, it's more of a taking or more of a force thing? Um, I, I think I've seen just some Facebook comments sometimes uh, on some of these issues. And, and I think it's really important 
uh, to emphasize the voluntary nature of the allotment retirements that that you're doing because I at least what I see from internet chatter sometimes is kind of an assumption that it's a different way. Well, I think that's all that it is, you know, is internet chatter. We see a lot of that around these days. Um, but no, there is, you know, I, I think we have to be careful about how we talk about it. I mean, these are voluntary transactions. These are willing seller buyer transactions. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, it's a, it's a personal choice. If a producer doesn't want to make a deal, they don't need to make a deal. We're not forcing anybody's arm to get off of these areas. We're not filing lawsuits to make it happen. Um, I think where we do run into some pushback is, is from some of the, uh, you know, more of the livestock industry groups um, that are interested in making sure that their industry is taken care of. They're not losing numbers out on the landscape, potential revenue, you know, for that livestock industry. I think, you know, when we're talking about these, these domestic sheep problems, it's a, it's a very small slice of that pie. I mean, very small. And that's, I think, where, where it's our job to do a better job communicating about that. To, no, we can have both out there, as Grace talked about. We just need to be smarter about where we're doing it and how we're doing it. Yeah, and I, Kid, I think you, you spot on there is, is that, you know, and that, that was what I was alluding to at the, at the, the higher level of the organizational uh, side, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, the mission of some of the, the uh, livestock producers is to not lose ground. Uh, and it would be like going to the Wild Sheep Foundation or NWF and saying, well, we want less, less wild sheep on the mountain. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to fight and push back. So, uh, you know, I've got an interesting story to tell of, you know, here's where, as, as Kit pointed out, it's sitting down and it's communicating. Uh, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. for a congressional hearing, and uh, there was the largest domestic producer from Montana was going to testify. Uh, and I was in I was in the hearing to you know to, to to be there, and I had submitted testimony as well. And I had not met this man before, and uh, we had recently put an ad in uh, in some of the local um, magazines here in, in in Bozeman and Big Sky, and it was a pretty graphical uh, graphic uh, and demonstrative of the the disease issue. And it said bighorn sheep and domestic sheep don't mix. And we had a picture that Kevin Hurley had taken taken up in, uh, near Gardner of a bighorn ram in with a domestic sheep herd. And then below were the pictures of the dead bighorn sheep afterwards. Um, well, this producer saw that and he thought that our ad was directed at him. And it really wasn't. Uh, but it was more of an educational ad, but it was edgy. And uh, just funny enough, I, I walked up to him in the in the halls of Congress, and you know I'm wearing cowboy boots. I'm a Western guy, but I'm in my you know my suit. He was as well, and I walked up to him to shake his hand. I'd been trying to get together with him to, to say, hey, let's sit down, and have a whiskey together, and talk. I think we probably have more more in common than we have apart. And it was really funny because uh, you know he kind of looked at me, didn't shake my hand. He says, yeah, I know you, and. Uh, you know, you, you want to get together, I'll bring more than whiskey. And I looked him in the eye, I said, guns or knives, I got both. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we were in the halls of Congress outside of a committee room. And I, I, I kind of gently grabbed his arm. I said, let, let, let's go to the side. And I, I, I said, John, you and I have more in common than, 
then we have a part. You're wearing boots, I'm wearing boots. I'm a Western guy, you're a Western guy. You love to hunt and fish, I love to hunt and fish. You know, I support livestock production. He goes, well, I thought you were against us. So no, I'm not, we're not. And we visited, uh, he said, well, you know, your ad. And I went, huh, okay. And I said, well, we'll talk a little bit about that. He, he did his testimony and I had submitted mine. Mine was written, his was verbal. That was the deal. And, and I walked up to him and he had some different comments that I didn't necessarily agree with. But, you know, here where we were literally talking about fisticuffs in, the, <laughs> in a congressional hall, at the end, he said, well, how, how, how did I do? And I said, you know, John, I think you did really well. And, and I agree with a lot of what you said. There's some things I may not agree with, but I, I think you did really well. And he goes, well, I appreciate that. Well, crazy enough, uh, you know, I saw him a little after the, uh, the hearing too and saw him outside and American sheep industry was, was doing some filming of, of this particular gentleman. And I, I said, well, let's get together sometime back in Montana. Well, we ended up meeting in the Minnesota airport and we had a beer and we had lunch together and he's sharing hunting photos and I'm sharing hunting photos. And he says, you know, I want more bighorn sheep on Montana's mountains too. Um, and I said, well, then let's work together. And we've now been on stage together doing forums of how we can work together. Uh, he uh, actually is a partner in a company that, that does U.S.-based merino wool clothing. Wild Sheep Foundation has bought and rebranded and put our logo on some of that clothing. And he is big in Montana wool growers. And I think his, his work with our Montana chapter and our relationship now, you know, here are two guys that could have fought uh, are now working together and our Montana chapter and wild, uh, Montana wool growers are now working together to put bighorn sheep on the mountain. So, you know, it's just a classic example of, you know, we've got more in common than we have apart. Uh, if we stay out of court and, and sit down at a table and have a beer, or have a cup of coffee and, and, and work together, we can accomplish great things. So, kid, I applaud, uh, I applaud what NWF is doing and what you and your dad have done. We, we gave you uh, our, our Outstanding Achievement Award uh, back in 2017 at our convention for the exceptional work that you personally do uh, and your dad personally do and NWF does. So we're just, we're just proud to work with this, uh, this great organization and, uh, and, and do good things for Wild Sheep together. I know we're, we're thankful to work with you guys as well, Gray. And uh, that was a great story, by the way. I think that, that it's, a, it's kind of an interesting summary of some of the Western issues. You know, a lot of strong personalities. I think in the sporting community, we really deal with that a lot, right? A lot of kind of rugged individualists who like to spend time alone in quiet places and maybe aren't the most adept at, at getting in big rooms with a lot of different people and figuring things out. But we're getting better at it. And we're, we're doing, we're doing cool things like that all the time. And so I, I appreciate the story, both just for the interesting backstory, but also it's a good, it's a good example of how things have, have to shake out sometimes. Um, and uh, we're getting close to, to our hour here. And I, I wanted to give both of you a chance if there was anything else, you, you know, you wanted to touch on, and then we'll ask a, a final question real quick here at the end, just to, just to wrap things up. But is there anything else either of you wanted to touch on that we, we should be telling our audience? Well, you know, from, from my side, I, I think, you know, 
talked about the internet chatter. And again, you know, it's kind of going back to Kit's story and, and my story of dealing with that producer. You know, um, it's so easy to sit down and, and I've done it and, and fire off a press release or fire off some missive that you know is just going to cause strife. And, you know, what we see in our country right now is strife and divisiveness. Uh, you know, uh, it, it just goes back, and I have to remind myself every once in a while, careful on the keyboard, pick up the phone uh, now, uh, can't meet face-to-face, <laughs> yeah. get on a Zoom call, and communicate. You know, communicate. Kit, you know, your story is so good about, you know, hey, you know what? We can work together. Um, and uh, and let's let's put a plan together that's good for both sides. You know, it's got to be win-win. Can't be win-lose. Um, and so I, I think that's my point is, you know, let's, let's just communicate a little better, you know, as, as, a, as it, even within the sporting community, you know, we, we pick sides, we pick platforms, we, you know, it, it's like, you know, let's just uh, pick up the phone and call someone, don't shoot off a, a nasty email and don't, don't put some crazy thing on social media and create an issue where there may not even be one. Ray, you're you're great at that, by the way. You you have a reputation of being a connector, so. <laughs> and I and I've seen it firsthand a few times, so I applaud you for that. <laughs> oh, I've had my share of screw ups too. <laughs> but I think that's the important thing too. We all have our screw ups, but you know, we got all you know. I think if we're owning up to them and uh, able to look look each other in the eye at the end of the day and know that. You know, we can sit down and have that beer, whiskey, and um, talk things through and work it out. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna be everything's gonna be better for wildlife in the end. It's amazing how much beer or whiskey comes up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've always, I've always said that the Wild Sheep Foundation was a drinking club with a sheep hunting problem. <laughs> <laughs> and after going to Wild Sheep Show, I tend to agree with that. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. Yeah. Well, tell us, Kit, where uh, or uh, sorry, Gray, where where can people find your organization out there on the on the web and in any other places you want to point folks to who might want to learn more? Yeah, we are on the web. We're at wildsheepfoundation.org. Uh, obviously, on on Instagram and on uh, on Facebook with the same the same name, Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, you know, we have an annual convention that we're, we're interested in seeing how that's going to look. And uh, we will have the sheep week this uh, this next year. We just don't know what it'll look like. Well, it'll be online or well, it'll be partially in person or what. But um, yeah, go to wildsheepfoundation.org. You'll learn about our organization. We've got headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. We've got staff biologists in Texas. Idaho uh, and Germany. Uh, wow. Kurt Alt, one of our uh, biologists, is part-time in Germany. He runs our international programs. We didn't talk about that, but uh, we do a lot of work in Central Asia. Uh, we've got an educator that is in uh, Reno, Nevada. He does our youth programs and uh, applaud NWF for your Artemis program. Superb uh, program. And we've got a lobbyist in uh, Washington, D.C. to fight the good fight for, uh, for wild sheep. Good, and we'll put we'll put those links uh, to to some of your stuff there in the show notes. Right on. Uh, so folks can can look through. Kit, where where do folks go to find your work? 
Um, on the internet, nwf.org backslash WCR. That's wildlife conflict resolution. I think if you just type in wildlife conflict resolution in the Google, um, our work is, is, is going to be up on the top there. Um, you know, I'm based out of Missoula, Montana. Uh, my colleague, Bob McCready, also with National Wildlife Federation's down in Colorado. So we've sort of split the West, uh, North and South. And, you know, I think as we talk about engaging and, and getting people more involved in sheep conservation, you know, I think that's one thing that I would, I would just implore um, listeners to do is just to be more informed, you know, check in with your fish and game agency in terms of, you know, what their plans are for bighorn sheep efforts. Let them know that there is interest, not just in drawing a tag, but seeing more sheep on the mountain and how you can get involved um, in that effort um, is critical in terms of how, how these populations are going to be successful. Nice. Well, we'll leave it with uh, one final question. Maybe you touched on it a tiny bit, but I think it's always fun to dream. We'll start with you, Gray. So if you could wave a magic wand right now and change one thing about wild sheep conservation, what do you think it would be? Huh. May, uh, well, if, if, if I could wave that wand, it would be there would be no disease issue. Because uh, if, if we can solve that, uh, everything will fall into place. We could have more sheep on the mountain. There'd be more people interested in it um, uh, from, from either a consumptive or a non-consumptive use. So uh, that, that, would be, uh, that would be my, uh, my, my magic wand. I do want to add one thing. Wild Sheep Foundation worked uh, with some partners uh, this last year on a, on a film. That's in the, it's in the uh, wildlife film series t- tours right now called Wild and Wool. Um, it's, it's just being shown through the film festivals, um, is in the international, uh, wildlife film festivals in, in Telluride. There's some in this fall. We'll start to release it once it gets through the festival, but you can, uh, you can check online and Google wild and wool, and you'll learn a lot about this disease issue from both sides of the, of the, uh, of the issue, from the, both the domestic and, and the wild sheep interest. So, you know, we wanted a balanced look and talk about the, the domestic sheep on the landscape uh, and what it means to Western way of life. And then also talk about the wild sheep on the landscape and what, what it means to us wild sheep advocates. So take a peek at that. Looking forward to that film. We'll, we'll definitely share it out on our channels once it's available. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. Kit, how about your magic wand? What would you do? Oh, I think I would be opening my draw results page and someday across the top, it would say <laughs> successful bighorn sheep. <laughs> all about what kids um, tag, I guess. No, but I, you know, in all honesty, I, I, you know, even though I might be out of a job getting rid of, you know, if, if we didn't have a, this disease conflict, um, our lives would be much easier. There'd be a lot more sheep out there, you know, wildlife disease, you know, as we know, isn't, isn't, um, it's not going away likely. Uh, in fact, we're seeing more wildlife disease, you know, even outside of bighorn populations, you know, whether we're talking chronic wasting disease, um, you know, there's a host of, 
of wildlife diseases that I think are, are only becoming more prevalent and how we um, work through these disease issues um, and can be proactive early on in dealing with them, I think is, is pretty important and educating, you know, the, the general public about disease and how we can prevent that is, is going to be really important. We have a target number. I'm, you mentioned, Gray, 85,000 or so, I think, is what you said there is for, for sheep now. Do we have a target number? And I, I'm sorry, I keep asking questions before I let you go. But. Uh, you know, and, and no. Uh, and that, I think, is a problem. And I think that's a weakness that we have, uh, Aaron, is that, you know, and I've asked our three biologists, uh, you know, you, you tell me what we can have. And so, um, and the, the domestic sheep industry has asked us that same answer. So, you know, there's not a target number. Um, I, I think it pointed out earlier in the program, but you know, there's a lot of suitable habitat. So, um, you know, I, I would, I would just, you know, I would like us to be able to look at every piece of suitable habitat and put a plan together to put big horn sheep there uh, and then maintain the habitat and the populations that we have in the thin horn range for the most part thin horn are still in all of their historic range there's some little pockets that there, there's some challenges but our biggest is is uh is big horn but i don't have a number for you <laughs> well great thanks you know thanks one, so one million would be great but uh, that ain't gonna happen <laughs> Well, gentlemen, uh, we've so appreciated having you on. I, I, every time I talk with Kid or you, Gray, about this issue, I, I learn something new, and there's, it's a fascinating subject, and we obviously have a ways to go, but you guys are certainly tip of the, tip of the spear, leading the charge and making great things happen on the landscape. And so we salute you. We appreciate your time today. Look forward to uh, talking in the future. Maybe you can come back when we're, when we're up to 200,000 and we're looking at getting to 400,000 or something, yeah. something like that, Gray. Love so. to see that, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see that. Well, we'll let you go. And, and thanks, Drew. And thanks, thanks, Gray and Kit. Appreciate your time and uh, get out there on the landscape and have some fun. Talk to you later, gentlemen. Sounds great. Thank you, Thanks. gentlemen. We are NWF Outdoors.